Mino Lion Media presents Pregnancy Pearls. Meet Dr. Nicole Plenty, a double board certified OBGYN and high risk pregnancy expert. She's brilliant, well researched, and feisty. Growing tired of seeing complications of pregnancy that could have been prevented, she wanted a way to empower women through knowledge because, as she says, all doctors aren't created equal. This quest to educate women birthed this podcast. Pregnancy Pearls with Dr. Plenty. Thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pearls with me, Dr. Plenty. Today, we're going to talk about fibroids and pregnancy. So, as I call them, my little gremlins. And fibroids are basically benign tumors of the uterus, and they disproportionately affect black women. So, black women suffer more than three times as much as white women from fibroids. So to help me discuss fibroids in more detail, I have brought a special guest and one of the dopest women physicians on the planet, Dr. Jaylene Sims. Dr. Jaylene Sims is a practicing general obstetrician gynecologist at Jackson Hines Comprehensive Health Center in Jackson, Mississippi. She has a passion for advocacy, health promotion, and community outreach to ultimately decrease health disparities and maternal mortality. She is the vice president of Sims Foundation of Hope Incorporated and host an annual conference, Imagine You, for middle and high school girls aimed at promoting health and wellness, career and personal development, and positive self-image in the Dallas, Texas, and Jackson, Mississippi areas. In her free time, (laughs) if if she has free time, I don't know how she has free time, but in her free time, she enjoys spending time with her husband, Ray Sims, and her daughter, Zoe McKinley Sims. Daylene, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to do this with you today. Tell us a little bit about how you came to Jackson. Sure. So um, I actually went to um, graduate school and post-baccalaureate school, which is um, basically prep school for medical school and medical school in Southern Illinois, um, Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. And my husband, I actually met while my first semester of graduate school and he was actually in Jackson, Mississippi. And so we actually did a long distance relationship for the first, what was it, like five years, pretty much throughout all of my time in Illinois, when it was time for me to match for residency, I was like, I have got to get to Jackson. And I made it very clear to the program, like, look, y'all, my husband is here. I need to be here. And thank God I matched um, at University of Mississippi Medical Center here in Jackson, Mississippi. So that is how I came to Jackson. I'm actually one year out from completing my residency. And as you say that I work at Jackson Hines Comprehensive Health Center, which is a community health center. It's a federal qualified health center. So as you can imagine, most of the patients I see there are either underinsured or they have Medicaid, Medicare. And so um, I would say the majority of my patient population are black women. And then Mm. I would say the next highest number would be Hispanic women. And then I have like some Hispanic, Chinese and white women in my practice as well. But I would say the majority are black women. Pretty multicultural. That's awesome. I love it. I mean, I absolutely love it. So, um, so in your patient population, how often do you treat women with fibroids? You know, I would say 
three to five days out of the week, I potentially would see, I would say, one to three patients um, of those days. So how do women usually present with fibroids? Are they usually in pain or tell us about a little bit more about that, like the presentation of fibroids? Yeah. So typically they come with abnormal periods. That is the most common actual presentation. But even before that, I would say some people have fibroids and don't know it because they don't have symptoms. So I actually have to backtrack and say the most common symptom is no symptom at all. Mm. And then once they become problematic or larger, then you would typically see abnormal periods. They can be, you know, irregular or they can be regular with significantly heavy flow. I do have some patients that present with painful periods or abdominal pain, abdominal bloating or constipation. It just kind of varies depending on um, how large they are, how long they've been present. Um, So yeah, but typically I would say abnormal uterine bleeding would be the most common symptom that I would see. Gotcha. Presenting factor. Mm -hmm. Why do in your opinion, some women issues with fibroids. And like you say, you know, the most common presentation is no symptoms at all. Like I have fibroids personally, and I didn't have any symptoms before I got pregnant. So so why, in your opinion, do, do some women have issues and, and some women don't? Well, you know, um, I think it really depends on the size and the location of the fibroids. For instance, if someone has a fibroid that's like in the lining of the uterus or like on uh, in the womb or in the cavity of the uterus, a lot of times they will have intermenstrual spotting, meaning they'll have their regular periods, but then have like maybe some spotting, something that's a little less heavy in between their menstrual cycles. And then if the fibroid is in the wall of the uterus, or meaning the muscle of the uterus, they're typically going to have um, heavy menstrual bleeding. And what happens during the period is that the uterus contracts or it clamps down. And if the uterus can't clamp down or contract very well to like squeeze off the arteries that are bleeding from the period, it's going to cause the person to have a heavy menstrual flow. On top of that, there's more blood supply to those fibroids to basically keep them alive and well and keep them growing. And so those arteries are going to be bleeding too. So like I said, it just kind of depends on the location. If it's located kind of towards like the outside and it's what we call pedunculated or kind of like um, sticking off of the uterus, sometimes people will have the bulk type symptoms, meaning the abdominal pain or bloating or constipation. Um, I have definitely seen where people have had huge fibroid uteruses or uteri is how it really is supposed to be said. Um, and they haven't had any heavy bleeding at all. And it's so surprising. So you just have no clue how people are going to like handle their own fibroids. You just never know. So is that how someone would know they have fibroids based on those symptoms? Well, you know what? Let me tell you something. If you don't have symptoms, don't, be, don't go looking for something. Right. <laughs> mention that first. <laughs> If you are not having problems and you are getting pregnant and having your children, don't go looking for something. Because let me tell you something, you start treating something that is not a problem to you, you're going to cause another problem. So there are some times where people like, for instance, um, I would say the mainstay is when you go to the emergency department for abdominal pain and you get a CT scan of the abdomen and um, 
they're like, oh, you have fibroids and you didn't know you had them. Your periods are regular. They're not heavy. And um, so that's one of those times where it's like, okay, well, I just found this because I had a CT scan because I had abdominal pain and I ended up having appendicitis or something. But they saw the fibroids and they sent me to the GYN for that. But I believe that if you have heavy menstrual bleeding, which, um, you know, heavy menstrual bleeding is very subjective. And so if I could just give you a, a little bit of a measure, if you're having a double up on your pads, using like two pads at the same time, or if you're having a double up on your uh, pad tampon co um, combo, or if you're using more than six to seven pads in a 24 hour period, passing blood clots, having um, soilage or um, overflow to your clothes or your bed sheets, your underwear, then your periods are probably heavy. And in that circumstance, you definitely need to be evaluated by your GYN. Um, yeah. Sometimes people have symptoms of just anemia, like their blood count is low and they feel tired. They're eating cornstarch and things like that, too. So that's another reason to be evaluated. So I like that you said that um, heavy bleeding is subjective because it is. I used to get people that had little bitty specks of blood in the toilet and they were calling that clot. Sometimes people say, oh yes, I have blood clots and they're like little slimy, snotty clots. So I say, no, show me with your finger. Use your index finger and your thumb and you show me how large they are. And you know, dime, nickel, a quarter, golf ball, baseball, I've, I've heard it all. Oh yeah, I've heard grapefruit sized clots. Yes. I'm like, oh, so you just had a baby, huh? Right. <laughs> You pushed out a baby's head. <laughs> so, so if somebody did present, let's say they're having heavy bleeding or they are anemic, they're tired all the time, how do you typically manage fibroids? What, what would be a patient's options? Well, okay, so there are a couple different options. You have your medical management and you have your surgical management. Now, I I'll tell you this, if you're not anemic, there is an option just to observe it just to watch it you don't necessarily have to get on hormones or have surgery if you choose not to um, some people say well I feel better now that I know what it is and I'm okay with just dealing with it I've had it evaluated and now I know what's there for the people that would like to do medical management there's a couple different ways that we can do that we can do it with an estrogen progesterone combination or we can do it with a progesterone only combination now there is a difference in the two with the estrogen and progesterone combination that can be with like birth control pills, the patch, like um, the ring that goes inside the vagina, any of that, any birth control basically that, um, that gives your body both of those hormones, you will have more regular periods and they'll be lighter. Let's talk about the hormonal thing because, you know, some people will go to their OBGYN requesting certain types of birth control pill, but there are people that should not be on hormones, right? Right. So let's right. do the disclaimer of who should not be on hormones. So if you are greater than 35 years old and you use tobacco or if you have migraine headaches with what we call an aura, meaning you know when they're gonna come, like you have flashing lights or um, you have some type of symptom, neurological symptom that lets you know that your migraine is coming, we do not want you to be on um, estrogen type of hormones because it can increase your risk for heart attack and stroke. If you have an active blood clot or a recent blood clot um, that was not provoked like a car, by a car accident or something like that, then you want to maybe, you know, try to 
do something other than your hormones because it can um, increase your risk for blood clots. Those are kind of some of the main reasons. ACOG says that's our governing body. They say, well, there are some conditions where you want to really watch the hormones that you're on, like diabetes and high blood pressure and things like that. But then what we say is the benefits of being on some type of birth control to prevent an unwanted pregnancy outweigh the risks of complications of pre or a pregnancy in general and complications of pregnancy. So that's one of those things where you definitely want to communicate with your healthcare provider, let them know the medications you're taking, the symptoms you're having so that you too can have a shared decision-making process and determine what's going to be best for you because it's not a one-size-fits-all for sure. Absolutely. So I know when people come in for preconception consults and their hemoglobin A1C is 10 and they are diabetic, which is basically that number that tells us how well controlled you are. So when people lie about their diabetes and how controlled they are, we can tell because right. if your hemoglobin A1C is over seven, you are not as controlled as you think you are. Like somebody, exactly. your meter is broken the numbers are not right, or maybe you just don't understand what goal you're supposed to get to to be controlled. But um, yeah, we can tell that. So when people come in with a hemoglobin A1C of like 10 and they're diabetic, I mean, that is that is one of the first things I tell them. You need to get on some birth control. Let's start you on some birth control until your hemoglobin A1C gets to a six. You know, I'll accept exactly. a seven, but I want it at a six. So absolutely right. You do have to weigh the risk and the benefits, um, mm -hmm. especially if you can start it, you know, short term while somebody's getting controlled um, if they want to become pregnant. I did that for a patient this week. Absolutely. So tell us about the surgical options. Yeah. So surgical options. There's actually um, a couple different options, actually. So it, it depends on where the fibroid is or the fibroids are. So if the fibroid is in the cavity or the womb on the inside, then there is this procedure called hysteroscopy. And a hysteroscopy is basically we use a camera to look inside the uterus. So that means we would go through the vagina, through the cervix, into the uterus, and we can actually use the camera to see what's there. And we can remove it that way. If the fibroid is closer, kind of distant from the lining of the uterus and it's like in the muscle or in the outside lining of the uterus, then we'd actually have to take an abdominal approach. Now, the abdominal approach, um, the method will depend on um, the size, the number, and the location as to whether, well, and also the, the provider skill level as to whether you can have it done laparoscopically or with a robot or with um, an open incision that could be like the in the form of a bikini cut or a vertical incision underneath your belly button. So those are your different surgical options that you can try. Oh, oh, so, oh, and they can be removed or you can have a hysterectomy. So if you are still wanting to maintain your fertility, then you definitely want to have what we call a myomectomy, meaning they're being removed. If you're like, honey, please, I have my tubes tied. I have um, three children. We are satisfied. We do not want any more. Sometimes you still see those people say, no, I just actually want to keep my uterus. I just want the fibroids removed. Or a lot of times they'll just say, mm -mm, take it. I'm, I'm done. I don't want any more periods. Take it away. So what's the what's the biggest fibroid you remove laparoscopically or robotically? And for the listeners, robotic surgery, people come in like, I want the robot. Well, you know, a laparoscopic surgery, meaning you don't have a robot, but it's still very, very small incisions, is very comparable to a robotic surgery. 
which basically uses almost the same ports. It's just a different type of technique. So tell us a, the difference between those, uh, Jaylene, and then tell me, like, what's the biggest you can remove um, laparoscopically or robotically? So, you know, depending on the size, like sometimes people, even if they have a laparoscopic or robotic procedure, they actually have to have what we call a mini laparotomy to actually mm -hmm. remove the fibroid. Um, and that would just kind of be in that bikini line. Um, and you can actually get them out six, seven centimeters that way. Some years ago, people used to use the morselator, um, <laughs> which is basically a way for you to kind of chop the fibroid up on the inside of the abdomen and just remove it. We don't see that used as much anymore just because if the fibroid has a little bit of cancer in it, um, which is very rare, but if the fibroid has some cancer in it, it actually, if you morselate it or tear it up on the inside of the abdomen, it releases cancer cells into the abdomen. But like I said, I mentioned that knowing, and I want y'all to just know that that is very, very rare. So if, if you and your provider decide that you don't want a mini laparotomy, meaning a little bikini cut that's small to remove the fibroid, if y'all decide that you want to do the morselation, I think that that's a good discussion for you two to have. Um, so yeah, I would say probably between five to seven centimeters, you'd be able to get through a little um, small laparotomy. And I, I have to mention, it is very difficult to do a laparoscopic procedure on fibroids that are behind the uterus. You really have to um, have a good exam and good pelvic sonogram so that you can know the location of the fibroids. And some people even send people for, um, send patients for MRIs so they can do their surgical mapping. Now, for me, honestly, I prefer the open technique because I want the tactile sensation. Sometimes with like the laparoscopic procedure, you can't actually feel everything. And so you may be leaving fibroids there. If I leave a fibroid there, it's gonna be for a reason. It was so close to your tube and I didn't wanna to have to take your tube as well. Or it was so close to your uterine artery that it would have caused excessive bleeding and potentially could have made me have to do a hysterectomy. Otherwise, I'll try to get out pretty much all of the fibroids um, as I can. I would say the largest fibroid I've moved um, with a laparotomy, um, I actually did a hysterectomy on her, but I had to remove the fibroid to do the hysterectomy. It was 20 centimeters. Oh, wow. That's the length of a newborn baby, a good sized newborn baby. But you did this. This was open, right? This was open with a vertical incision, uh, up and down okay. incision. Yes. <laughs> and she oh, wow. had, that was just one of the fibroids. She had other like large fibroids, too. So just for um, the listeners, when we talk about, you know, the uterus, obviously that carries the baby. When we talk about the tubes, we're talking about your fallopian tubes. So. Mm -hmm. Once, um, so when you have an egg, meaning in your ovary, your ovary releases eggs, it travels down that tube, which is basically a tunnel that goes into the uterus. The cervix is the opening of the uterus. The fundus is the top of the uterus. So just so everybody understands. So the fibroid that she removed made her uterus so big that it was the size of a seven month old baby. So the top of her uterus, the fibroid went from the bottom to the top of the uterus. So Jaylene, you know, I have personally had fibroids. I have five or six gremlins. I call them my little gremlins because they are the leeches inside of me. And, you know, they're sort of kind of scary. And I realized that they can do some scary things just like the gremlins. So you have the nice gremlins and then all of a sudden they turn into like the the 
badness that can attack you. And so that's basically exactly. what fibroids did. I didn't know I had them until I went to an annual exam. I had no symptoms at all. And my OB said, huh, your uterus is bigger than the normal. I think you might have fibroids. And she said, you don't have any constipation at all? Like no heavy bleeding? And I said, no, I mean, it's my cycle is heavy on the first day, but last four days, like clockwork, comes every 29 days, no issues. So she did an ultrasound, and at that point, they found five fibroids, and they were about maybe two or three centimeters each. So not that big of a deal. I think the biggest one um, may have been four and a half, but the, the other ones were about two or three centimeters. And um, so I talked to her about, you know, well, what do you want to do? And um, she asked me, well, what do you want to do? <laughs> Well, if if they're not bothering me, I'm not going to bother them. We will start trying to get pregnant because at this point, me me and my husband have been married maybe two and a half years and we wanted to have children. But at this point, I was 34 and I was like, well, you know, it's time anyway. We decided to have a baby and um, we had a miscarriage maybe two months after. And so we went back. She said, well, your fibroids are a little bit bigger now. So the largest one now is about five centimeters. Are you having any symptoms? Well, no, I'm still not having any symptoms, but now I've had a miscarriage. So it was a long conversation. And when your OB is your friend, (laughs) it's hard. You know, it's hard for them to make a decision because they're like, well, you know, they're not really, you know, it could have been just a whim, you know, because a third of women have miscarriages, right? And they're just, unrelated to fibroids, even though they have them. Right. So she's like, well, you know, you have these fibroids and I'm literally quiet. Like, I'm going to let her make this decision. I am not going to say anything. And she's like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I said, how about this? If we have another miscarriage. Then I will get a myomectomy. And we got pregnant. We actually waited to get pregnant because I was, you know, once you've had a miscarriage, it's sort of scary. So we waited to get pregnant. I think we waited like a whole maybe eight or nine months before we tried again. And once we tried, we got pregnant two months after that. We we got pregnant relatively quickly. And we basically held our breaths until it was confirmed. You know, I was we could see something in the uterus. And then I got admitted at 10 weeks. I had a massive deep vein thrombosis, which is a DVT, which is a blood clot in your leg from the hip down. And I had three pulmonary emboli and a negative workup for clotting disorders. And I was told these fibroids cause compression of my iliac vein, which is a, a big vein that carries blood away from the lower part of your body. I was in the hospital for a week because of these fibroids, girl, I mean, I had a whole bunch of other stuff that happened. I, I just was a walking case. These fibroids caused this badness. So once I was 24 weeks pregnant, I looked like I was maybe 32 weeks pregnant. I was big in oh, pregnancy. Lord. My husband and I will not, we won't get pregnant again, but it was still the right decision not to get um, a myomectomy because people ask in hindsight, look, would you have gotten them removed before or would you still have waited? I think in hindsight, I probably would have waited, but I don't know. I don't know what I would have done uh, differently or what I should have done differently. Surgery is still a risk all by itself. Yeah. So, you know, if your goal is to prevent yourself from having a surgery just because you know the risk related to it, then it's like, I probably still wouldn't have. Like, yeah. Like, I get where you're coming from on that. 
They degenerated in pregnancy, so uh, meaning they outgrew their blood supply and they shrunk. Oh, was that painful? The... I bet that was like... You know, that is one of the biggest things I counsel patients on. I always tell them when they're pregnant, hey, the biggest concern in pregnancy is fibrodegeneration. So fibroids can um, cause you not to get pregnant, and it can also, if you have big fibroids, increase risk of growth restriction in the baby's although uh, that risk really isn't that significant. But um, the biggest thing is if you have big fibroids, they can degenerate. But, you know, like bleeding is subjective, pain is subjective as well. So I have patients that I've had to admit during pregnancy and put them on you know, morphine and, you know, a lot of pain medicine to get them through that period of degeneration, which you basically one or two weeks. So, Jaylene, have you dealt with like any case like that before? I actually have, and it's funny because I know a lot of healthcare providers that have had issues with fibroids. So for my personal story, for the longest I had no clue that I had fibroids. By the time I actually found out that I had fibroids, um, for the size that they were, they had to have been there for an extended period of time. Um, I first started having actual symptoms when I was in residency, and let me tell you, my periods were off the chains. I mean, <laughs> I would have to wear a super tampon plus a pad with wings. It couldn't be without wings. It had to have wings. And oh, wow. I would have to change every two hours because if I went over that, I may have saw something on my pants. You can imagine that if I was in a long surgery, I would just be there like towards the two, two and a half hour mark. Like, Lord, please, Lord, please just let this be okay. Lord, please just let this be okay. And I'm still operating. And I mean, as soon as I would get out of the operating room, I would like run to the restroom just so I could like make sure that I haven't like gone through my pants. Oh, and wow. at night I would put a black towel on the bed so that I wouldn't go through to the sheet. If I happened to oversleep my two hour mark, it was just like an oh internal clock. I just wasn't sleeping well. I would wake up every two hours and like run to the restroom. I mean, it was so bad. I never had any blood clots or anything like that. But I mean, I would go through my clothes, boom, 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 just like that. I mean, if I would not change every two hours. I was on one night during my second year when um, it started to get worse because I remember um, I want to say for sure my intern year. Now, I will tell you this. I was taking birth control pills for a good eight years after I got married. And so that could have masked a lot of the heavy menstrual bleeding. But then when I came off of it, then I started to know the heavy bleeding. And then I'll be like, oh, shoot, I better get back on these pills. But I never really thought in my mind that I had fibroids, even though I'm treating fibroids every day as a resident. I just at one point after about a year of it being to the most heavy I had it, I just said, OK, forget it. I know I'm a resident, but I have to stop what I'm doing and get help. So I sent a text message to my GYN and said, that's it. I have abnormal uterine bleeding and I need an appointment. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I did go like the next week or later on that week. And I joked to her. I said, man, I might have fibroids. But in my mind, I knew that's what I did not want it to be because I knew what the consequences could have been. And she did uh, an exam on me and she said, Jaylene, I think you have fibroids. Like your uterus is enlarged. It's about, you know, the size of a three month pregnancy. And I was just like, oh, shoot. So like I immediately became kind of tearful because in my mind that meant, well, I might need a myomectomy. 
for me, meaning the fibroids removed. I might need, um, and if I get a myomectomy, I might um, have to have a preterm C-section for my delivery. Like in my mind, I immediately went to the doctor space for Mm -hmm. what was to come even before I even had a sonogram. So um, I went and had my sonogram. And I mean, just looking at the sonogram, like I knew what I was looking at. I like tears was just rolling down my face. Like I was just like, oh my gosh, this looks bad. Like this looks horrible. And of course, you know, even though you knew it was fibroids and not cancer. Right, exactly. And in my mind, it was the worst thing that could happen because I never wanted to have surgery. So I was like, I'm gonna have to have surgery to get these removed and then turn around and have another surgery for my C-section. And I had never even wanted to have a C-section. So like, I just knew that there was a road ahead of me. And I, and at this point I had already tried to get pregnant several times and um, so, so at that same visit, I was like, and I'm working at having, I, we want to have a baby. And she was like, well, Jaylene, you starting to get up there in age. And at this point, like I'm 34, getting ready to be 35. And she's like, well, let me just walk down the hall and talk to the fertility specialist. And we're going to get you an appointment with him too. So I came back and had a sonogram with him. And um, the person that was going to do my surgery, because we were hoping for a laparoscopic procedure and my actual GYN does not do laparoscopic procedures. So she was just like, well, ask um, this other person. I know that she does and see if she'll do it. And, and I asked her like that day. She was like, yeah, sure. No problem. So she did an exam on me and she was like, Jaylene, I don't I don't think laparoscopic um, technique is the right thing for you. She was like, I want to help you. I don't want to hurt you. And I think we need to do this as an open procedure. And I'm sitting here like, oh, Lord, this is this is like just this is worsening my day. So like I was down for, I would say, a good week after this. So anyways, we went ahead. We had the myomectomy. And then at that point, like they bivalved my uterus to get all the fibroids out. Bivalve meaning they cut it from the front side over the top all the way to the back. That's how significantly um, embedded my fibroids were. And there was one that was about, I would say, four to five centimeters that was almost completely on the inside of the cavity or the womb. And so that was probably a reason why I wasn't able to implant the pregnancy. And so um, anyway, she was like, you need to wait a minimum of six months before you can even try. And you need to be delivered at 36 weeks by C-section. So, of course, that was the plan. And, you know, I healed up at the six-month mark. I went to the fertility specialist and we did another sonogram and everything looked like it was start. It was healing up. I mean, there were still some areas that were like, we can tell you still had you had surgery not too long ago. And we did um, intrauterine um, Mm -hmm. insemination. We did four cycles and we finally got pregnant on the fourth cycle. And now Zoe is 16 months old. So for people listening, so if you took, so listen to your story. The reason that you saw the infertility specialist is because you had multiple miscarriages initially. Is that right? Well, no. So I didn't have multiple miscarriages, but I had attempted several times and um, we didn't get pregnant. And so how long um, had y'all tried? We had been trying really just leading up to the point where I actually went to the GYN. Um, I would say like four to five months. And then, you know, like, and that was 34. So I didn't really meet the one year criteria, but I was about to be 35, which would have been the 30, the the six month criteria almost there. Right. And so, um, 
you know, we were back and forth as to like after we had our um, myomectomy and we were like ready to start trying, we were kind of back and forth like, should we just try on our own? We probably be fine. Or should we just speed it up by using the, the technology? And um, gotcha. after I left the appointment with him where I was going to go ahead and pick up the, the medication, I sent him a text and said, hey, do you think that we should just try naturally for a while first? And he said, Jaylene, at your age, I have no reason to suggest you be less aggressive, but you can either way would be fine. And I said, well, I mean, if you don't have a reason to, to be less aggressive, then I'm fine with going ahead and going with it. Because it wasn't like I was going to have to have like an egg retrieval, you know, or anything like that. It was just we were speeding it up by, cool. um, gotcha. you know, the procedure. So, yep. So that's gotcha. the reason why we ended up choosing to go that route. So if for people listening, so usually if you have fibroids, if you're OB, so if you went to Dr. Sims, she would be able to do your procedure. And she would also be able to follow you through your pregnancy. So sometimes your OB, like your general OBGYN can do all of those things and are very, very capable of doing them. But like Jaylene's situation, she wanted to be more aggressive. And so when you are, you know, approaching that 35 mark, most people tell you, you don't need to see a fertility specialist until you've tried consistently for a whole year. Once you reach 35, then it is six months. You can try consistently for six months. And then if you haven't gotten pregnant after that six month period, then you could see a fertility specialist if you desired, which would go over those options um, that uh, Jaylene did. And she had IUI, which is intrauterine insemination. Um, and that is basically where basic sperm is injected into a cervical canal, if you will, once you're ovulating. So it's something that's timed perfectly to get you pregnant um, naturally versus IVF, which is in vitro fertilization, which is when you'd have a procedure that retrieves eggs and those eggs are fertilized outside and then implanted back into the uterus. Speaking of fertility specialists, there's a case that was emailed to me. While you were talking, I was thinking about this case and, I, and I'll discuss it with you that, hey, maybe this person should probably see a fertility specialist as well. So for the purposes of confidentiality, this is somebody that emailed me to ask me a question um, after watching one of my YouTube videos. Let's call this person Tammy. So Tammy is 39 years old. She had two miscarriages a few years ago. After the second miscarriage, her OBGYN did an ultrasound and told her she had two large fibroids. At that time, no one mentioned removing them. Since that time, she has had five more miscarriages. With the last miscarriage, she had a genetic workup on herself and her partner, and they're genetically normal. And she also had um, genetic testing on the products of conception, so basically the, the tissue of the miscarriage. And everything was negative with that as well. She now has four fibroids. The largest one is 10.5 centimeters, and the smallest is six centimeters. She's being told that the fibroids are the reason for her miscarriages and that she needs either a myomectomy, meaning have the fibroids removed, or a hysterectomy, meaning her uterus removed. She's never had kids, and she really wants to have them. This actually burns me up, and let me tell you why. Those fibroids should have been moved, removed a long time ago. That's just right, with the second miscarriage. Opinion. <laughs> um, exactly, like she should not have had to go through that many miscarriages 
in order to wake somebody up. Right. That's number one. Number two, if someone is telling me that they want to have a child and they're showing that to me by continuing to try or attempt pregnancies and actually, you know, achieving pregnancies, I'm not going to offer them a hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, well, if you want to have a child, why don't we remove them? And so I, I, I think that she definitely should have a myomectomy. And I think that she needs to be sent to the fertility specialist immediately because now she's not going to own 40. Right. I was sitting there thinking, uh, reading this, thinking, okay, you've now had seven miscarriages. You're 39. Like, I wonder how old she was when she had that first the miscarriage. First so it's pretty normal if you're asymptomatic to, like, like in my case, I did not have a myomectomy after my first miscarriage. But the conversation definitely was, hey, I'll get one after the second miscarriage. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure why her OB didn't do um, the myomectomy or offer her the myomectomy. That's exactly like if it was offered, then we're good. But if it was not offered and was like, okay, well y'all just keep on trying, but we know you got these fibroids. Go ahead, girl, keep on trying. <laughs> so is, is a myomectomy. So let's say she didn't want surgery. Would she have any non-surgical option? Well, that depends on the symptoms, I would say, you know, um, because if we think that the fibroids are what are causing the miscarriages, then really there's no non-surgical mm -hmm. option per se. But if her symptoms gotcha. were, well, I'm bleeding or I'm having constipation, then her medical option as related to hormones is counterproductive. Would you, you know, ever offer this? To. She was never offered? Yeah, I don't know if she was ever offered that or not. Uh, I was asking if you would ever offer, let's say, a course of Deprolupron to try to shrink the fibroids. You know, we could try that. That would definitely be an option. I've definitely heard of people uh, discussing that as an option. Um, and I've even heard of people offering uterine artery, artery embolization. Embolization, yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm less likely to offer that. Just because you don't really want to decrease the blood supply and potentially cause an increased incidence of like preterm labor or growth restriction or something like that for a future pregnancy. But when you look at the literature, it says that you can offer it. So the literature definitely says you, you can offer a uterine artery embolization. I was having a discussion with um, a friend of mine that is an REI about another family member of mine that has symptomatic fibroids and asking about, you know, would you do recommend a myomectomy or a uterine artery embolization? And so our IVF colleagues prefer a uterine artery embolization to do IVF. Yes. Now as an MFM, I've obviously I prefer the myomectomy right? because, <laughs> you know, it, um, you know, there's different trains of thought for them, you know, a myomectomy distorts the tissues and things like that. And so, right. Uh, when they're talking about doing IVF and retrieval and implantation, for them, it's, you know, it doesn't distort as much. You know, if you right. can get the uterine, one, the uterine artery immunization doesn't necessarily work all the time. You know, you have to have. say that you have to have the right type of fibroids for that. And you have to have somebody skilled that can actually do it because they're they're cutting off those branches to each one of the fibroids. If you have somebody that can actually map out the fibroids and map those vessels to the fibroids and actually 
stop the circulation to each one of those and not deal, do anything with the main uterine artery, then you you may be okay. But if you have anybody that's going into a main branch, well, then obviously from an MFM standpoint, you have the risk of having a baby with growth restriction and preterm delivery and the things that come with growth restriction can be pretty detrimental. I mean, you can have a, a miscarriage, you can have a stillbirth, you can have a, a, an extremely preterm delivery. Uh, if you have severe growth restriction and abnormal blood flow to the baby, you know, from the mm-hmm. from the placenta. So, but, you know, some of my IVF colleagues are like, yeah, I mean, I'd counsel them on that. Plus, mm-hmm. if you're cutting off too much blood supply, then you can also decrease fertility. And so I always counsel people about about that versus uh, going to a myomectomy. But, um, well, I guess the happy medium between um, the REI uh, colleagues and MFM colleagues would probably have to be the Depo-Lupron. <laughs> yeah, you know, Depo-Lupron has its risk as well. But that, yeah, exactly. I was going to say, but that right there, I mean, then you go into the hot flashes, like the, you know, the menopausal symptoms, and you got so much related to that as well. So everything has its risks. I mean, I think that's basically the ultimate thing we're saying here. Like we have a lot of great options. It's just that we have to be willing to accept the risk related to each, whichever one that, you know, you do your shared decision-making process with, you have to be able to accept the risk related to it. Right. Um, For people listening. So Depro Lupron, I know some people are like, Oh, I take Depro for birth control. Not the same thing. Mm -mm. So (laughs) we got Depro Provera and then we Mm -hmm. got Depro Lupron. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Depo-Provera is your birth control pill. You I mean like your not pill, but birth control injection that you're getting every three months. Depo-Lupron is basically a hormone that's going to block your estrogen receptors. So it's almost like putting you into menopause for a little while. And that way, if you block your estrogen, then that stimulation of those fibroids um, will obviously decrease and can potentially shrink. And so you use a short course of Depo-Lupron for about six months. Like uh, Dr. Sims said, you can have some symptoms of like menopause for a little while. So the take home is talk to your OBGYN, talk about like figure out, you know, are you symptomatic? Are you not symptomatic? So if somebody just told you you have fibroids and you haven't had any miscarriages and you're not having any symptoms then I like Dr. Sims said, leave them alone. <laughs> They're okay. And if you are having symptoms and, you know, talk about Dr. your OBGYN about where you, where you need to be, meaning do you want to have kids or do you not? Are you done having kids? If so, do you need a hysterectomy or do you not? And so for this woman, obviously she doesn't want a hysterectomy. So Dr. Sims, your ultimate recommendation on that would be, my mectomy is what I'm hearing. Right. Mm-hmm. Ten, ten and a half centimeters. Honey, get it out of there. Yeah. And I know that uh, it makes it worse for the IVF colleagues because, yes, I, some of the myomectomies that I've done, you know, I try my best to keep the endometrial cavity as intact as possible, meaning the lining of the uterus is intact as possible. But sometimes you actually have to enter that. And then I just make make it my duty to close that layer back up very tediously and then get to the muscle and the um, the outside layer. But um, it's I think it's the best thing for her. Well, thank you so much, Jaylene. Thank you for the advice. Thank you for coming on the podcast and blessing us with your knowledge. 
So to our listeners, uh, how can they follow you, make an appointment with you? What's going on in the future with you? Okay. Well, um, I am on Instagram and that's Jaylene Sims zero one. Um, that is my handle there. And then we actually, um, the Sims foundation of hope, um, that we have a Facebook page and an Instagram page and they're both just Sims foundation of hope. And, um, we actually host an annual conference for middle and high school girls. Like, um, Dr. Plenty said before, we canceled our conferences for this year. Thank you, COVID. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I plan on getting those back in session next year. And I'm thinking that we usually would have one in the spring. Um, I'm thinking, or actually both of them in the spring. This year they were planned for like the, we actually pushed them back both to the fall. I think I'm going to go ahead and make them both the fall next year just so we can make sure there were like kind of far out from COVID, I don't think it's going away for a while. But no. um, if you are in the Dallas Fort Worth area, um, be looking out for announcements on dates. If you're in the Jackson, Mississippi area, you can also be looking out for dates. And otherwise, if you need an OBGYN, um, if you're looking for an annual exam, uh, if you're looking for you know contraception, STD testing, any of that, um, I am at the Jackson Hines Comprehensive Health Center. I'm at two locations. You can um, actually call 601-321-2234. Use extension. You have to use this extension. You have to. <laughs> to get to the front desk, um, 1002, and you can make an appointment there. That's at one of the locations, but they can also get you in contact with me or wherever I am to make an, um, um, an appointment at the other location. Um, but that's kind of what's going on with me right now. Um, I'm happy that I was able to join you today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Now, I want to hear from our listeners. So if you're having a woman's health issue that is currently affecting your pregnancy or could affect your potential pregnancy, please email me about it at pregnancypearls at gmail.com. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Pregnancy Pearls is hosted by Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty. Produced by Nicole Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find Pregnancy Pearls on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice for diagnosis or treatment of individual medical conditions. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with specific questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a Mean Old Lion Media production.